This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to season three of Climathon. This season, I'm talking to women across the globe who are at the forefront of climate science and climate action. Each guest is a thought leader in one or more of the drawdown.org climate solution sectors. What, you may ask, are the drawdown.org solution sectors? Well, important topics like renewable electricity, soil and agriculture, architecture, oceans, health, education, so much more. The goal of this season is, of course, to continue to help design educators incorporate a foundation of sustainability and regeneration into their courses and, in turn, inspire more climate designers. Climate solutions are already here. You can literally start being part of the solution today. Climify brings these solutions to you. So no matter what your skill or knowledge level, you can implement what you learn today in your personal life and classroom. When you look under electricity in the drawdown solution sectors, you'll find a large list of climate solutions ranging from high efficiency heat pumps to solar panels and from LED lighting to insulating your business or home. The guest today, Pamela Fan, checks nearly all these energy solution boxes through her truly inspirational Black-owned business, Impact Energy. But beyond electricity, Pamela also is helping her clients understand that equity and inclusion is vital for environmental justice and cannot be untangled from our climate problems. One of the many key takeaways I had from this interview today was how best to work within a community to restore their power and voice in making the changes they need. I hope you are inspired by Pamela's work and help support all her efforts. Hi, I'm Pamela Van, co-owner of Impact Energy, a certified Black women-owned energy services company where we specialize in both project installation of electric vehicle charging installs and maintenance, heat pump installs and energy audits, and also with a focus on workforce development. So working within communities for economic impact and economic development. I am a certified diversity professional, a certified diversity trainer, and I've been working in the energy industry on equity issues for over five years. I'm personally located in Atlanta, Georgia, but our office is based out of Massachusetts, and we do work across the U.S. You can find us at www.impactenergy.energy, or you can find me on LinkedIn under Pamela Fan, as, as in Frank, A-N-N, as well as you can find Impact Energy on LinkedIn as well and follow us. Welcome, Pamela. Thanks for being on Climify today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Yeah. It's been a while since we first uh, met each other when we talked on Zoom. I don't even know. Was it like a month ago? A month or maybe two, two almost two. Even. Yeah. You've been yeah, busy. Been you've been busy. Back in February. We've yeah, both which been is, very busy. It's a good busy though, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm excited to talk to you about uh, your knowledge, working in energy, your DEI work. I'm going through the list of things you do here. It's, it's quite a lot. So there's, there's a lot of ground to cover. But before we get into the stuff that you're doing right now, I'm wondering how you got to where you are and, and why you decided to focus in climate work and everything connected to climate work, because I, I feel you can't unravel pretty much anything from climate, right? Race, uh, politics. I mean, it's all kind of baked into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you, I got here uh, by purpose. And I say that because, you know, I like to think that you're, you know, most of our steps are kind of ordered through life. And I never would have projected that this is the space that I would be in. Oh, really? Uh, but yet I've yeah, self here. Yeah, like what, what did you expect to be in when you were younger? Not thinking. Yeah. And I think about that because that was that was all purposeful too. It all led to to where I am today. 
I spent 22 years, pretty much all of my working years at the Coca-Cola company where I worked. Yeah, my last role there, I spent seven years in global public affairs and communication, which, seemingly enough, worked a lot with the ESG group, the sustainability, doing a lot of the sustainability work and packaging and bottles and things like that. So doing the public affairs around that. But even then, even in then, I still didn't recognize the purpose, right? Also, you know, they did a lot of work with women in the 5 by 20 project that reused, whether it was Coke bottles or uh, caps or material in some sort of way uh, to make make things with to then go resell on a marketplace. So mm-hmm. if you think about sustainable products in that way, and then you could buy these products through a booklet, a 5 by 20 booklet, and the funds for funding from that goes back to the women in these villages. And these are women all over oh, I didn't below. Know that. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Probably like one of the most inspiring parts of the work that I saw the organization do. During my time at Coke as well, I seven years for seven years sat on a diversity board there. And so diversity has always been a part of something that I encompassed in the work that I've done. I grew up in a small town of Owasso, Oklahoma. My family was the first Black family to integrate the entire town. Yes, the entire town, the entire town. Uh, like uh, not the that, That's a whole other podcast about how that happened. That's a whole other podcast, but it's still connected because, again, sure. what I'm doing is purposeful work. It's purposeful work. And so I think that the way that I, you know, grew up in the town that I in, was in, a lot of me, a certain vantage point and viewpoint of diversity that I then brought into, you know, the scope of the work that I've always done, whether that's through volunteerism or whether it's in the lens of the work that I had in in, in corporate. And then, you know, which led me to, you know, a little over five years ago, coming into the energy industry when I go to my first Two conferences. My first conference actually was in DC, and it was a conference of about 700 people were present. And there were literally two Black women there, no Black men, two Black women, myself and another woman. Very small percentage of women altogether, but racial makeup was very small. There might have been, I think, an Asian man uh, there that I remember, but this is at a group of 700 people in the energy industry. So I was like, okay. That, uh, all right. That's interesting. That, that's to me, that was white. interesting. <laughs> Again, yes, it, it's very white, very old, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, common for, for this industry. It's commonplace, which I didn't really know at the time. I was literally in my job probably about two weeks before I went to this conference. So then the next conference that I go to, some of the same sentiment. Like, I think I might have been the only Black person there person of color, even a few more women, but mostly male, mostly older male. And that's all you really saw on the stage during the panel discussions. Mm -hmm. And all of the talk tracks were men, very few women sprinkled in there. And I remember seeing a black woman on a, on a panel at the, about the third conference. And I had a conversation with her and I was like, what's, what's going on here? Like, you know, I'm so happy to see you in this space and see that you were on the panel. She was on a women in energy panel. So it was for like a women in affinity group. And she was like, yeah, this is how this, this landscape looks as you start to travel and go through these conferences and events. You know, I'm a business owner and, and it's, it's hard for us here. And I had a really great conversation with her about it. And I said, I even told her at that time, like, I want to, I want to help with this. Like, I feel like I can help with this, utilizing the skill set that I learned back at Coke and then my knowledge of diversity growing up, I really felt that I could make an impact there. And so I went back to my office and I had a discussion with our executive director at the time. And I said, you know, what do you think about this diversity problem? in the energy industry. And she's like, yes, it's, it's obvious, right? It's a big and she problem. Said, it's just an older white man's industry and this is what it is. And I said, wow. And I said, I'd like to do some work in helping with this and 
so I thought I'd, you know, just to be official, I went and got certified as a diversity professional. I got a CDP. I got certified as a diversity yeah. trainer. And this is well before I even became popular after George Floyd and people wanted to get into these careers. But I wanted to really learn uh, the fundamentals behind it. And then so people could say, take me serious. Like, yeah, it's enough to say, yeah, I worked on a diversity board for seven years, but then to put some kind of credentialing behind Maybe. it. So I went and did that. And then I came back and after I got those certifications, I took our own organization through a cultural competency framework to ensure that we were living the values in which we thought we were um, yeah. and that we were creating an inclusive culture for people to come in and be themselves and be able to work. Because, you know, even as much as people say that they're diverse or that they embrace diversity and that they're culturally competent, you know, we're humans and sometimes we're just yeah. we're just not or our organizations aren't as good as they could be. Yeah. Was that so, sort of, uh, what was that like a workshop or what kind of, what, what was that all about? How did you come to the conclusions about were you diverse in terms of what your mission said? Yeah, no, it's actually building out a framework. So taking the organization through assessments mm -hmm. to see what the employees thought that worked uh -huh. there, no matter how big or small the organization is. Your employees are your best indicators and trackers for That's how true. well you're doing on inclusivity, right? Asking questions like, do you know how promotions are, are awarded within a company? That's diversity because people have to be able to feel like, you know, they're not being discriminated against, whether that's through pay disparity or any other means. Do right. you have a 360 feedback where you can get feedback to your managers as well as you're, you know, doing peer reviews? All of that HR process stuff is a part of it. So it's not just doing bias training. Everybody thinks yeah. it's about bias training and learning about our biases. I do that That's all the time at the university. They, we have, I think, three different tests. Yes. Every year. Yeah. So you take the bias test. Are you, bi are you biased? Yes, of course you are. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. biased. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're all biased. So it's going to come out the same way every time. You're, you're biased because <laughs> we all are. Uh, so, yes, doing bias training. And trainings are a part of that. But trainings alone don't create an inclusive culture. You do have to be intentional and put intentionality behind creating inclusive inclusivity into your organization and inclusivity into your work and how you work. So then I began working with other organizations on developing frameworks for their cultural competency within their organizations. They were like, yeah, we want to become more diverse too. And then after George Floyd, it was like everybody wanted to become more diverse because, you know, they had made these commitments to diversity and we're going to do better, but they didn't know how to go about doing it. So then I started working with companies and organizations. And a part of that framework is also how do you work within communities? How are you yeah. understanding the needs of communities within your work and building equity into that? Because as energy companies, right, you're dealing with communities who have taken on the brunt of climate change, Correct. who have taken on the brunt of environmental justice. And if you're going into these communities looking like the people that I saw in those first couple of conferences. <laughs> right. They're not going to trust them, right? They're not going to trust you. They're not going to trust anything you're saying because you're the same people that caused harm to their communities. Mm. But how do we bridge those gaps? How do we, one, get you people employed there? Because, you know, what I was hearing is, we don't know where to find the diverse candidates. We don't know where to find diverse people. We're all over. Like, yeah, yeah what, what over are they talking network. about? <laughs> that's exactly like, that's exactly it. But, you know, we have to think about it. And they come, it, it's honest for them that they don't know where to find the candidates or the people because... Their network is small. You know, if you're not a person who embraces cultural differences, typically, and you hadn't done that, and it's not a part of your normal regimen, then you are going to look at, hmm, who went to school at the same school that I went to, which might be a predominantly white school? Or, you know, you see a resume, who got recommended or who got recommended from uh, this person? You're, it might be someone in your network recommended this person to work for you and more than likely their network looked like them. Mm -hmm. So you got it, honestly. So I helped teach them how to, you know, divert the path a little bit and rebuild those networks so you are creating a more diverse network of participants to your applications. 
because your 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 communities and the people that you're actually your customer base and people who you're actually trying to do this work for people in your office need to look like that customer base people in your office need to have that um experience um that sometimes lends to thought and different thoughts and different reactions they have to have to have someone on your team that can raise their hand and say this is not equitable um and so creating inclusivity within your organizations and work is what's going to help build that equity into doing the work externally and doing the work in, yeah. in those communities and yeah i mean we're doing a disservice to ourselves if we're not diversifying our organizations to meet community needs because again those are the communities that are being left behind in this transition and so in order to make those communities whole and to bring them along with us, you're going to need to have some people that look like those communities and mm-hmm. understand the problems and the systems and the way that things work in those communities, too. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you talked a lot about impact. I'm guessing this is the impact you want with the name Impact Energy. Yeah, that's the whole impetus behind our, our name is that we want to make an impact within communities. And we're doing that through because we we have the knowledge of going out and how to get the contracts and how to get the project work for EV installation, for EV maintenance, for energy auditing. But we're also going to work with the communities to train people to go out and do the work of these projects that we win. Mm-hmm. So not only are we going to make communities whole by making them healthier, by installing uh, electric vehicle charging stations, in their communities and educating them about EV charging and EVs, that they are cost-effective. They are a cost-effective option and some pretty almost more so than a car with an engine that, you know, you can drive out of state in one and go visit your family. If you've got, you know, a larger family and flying may not be an option for you and you drive everywhere. It's like, yes, this is an option and you can drive your family out of state. Absolutely. And it's the health benefits, the carbon reduction, the health benefits behind making this community a cleaner transportation community where you already are suffering from, you know, uh, the carbon effects of large warehousing or highways coming through your communities because of redlining, the systematic problems that we see in environmental justice communities that are really like I don't want to say like the dumping grounds, but really have been True. for for climate for climate issues and and environmental issues. And so going in and providing these options to communities and providing economic opportunity to where they can also see a future for themselves in this in this industry is really our mission. This is what we're passionate about and what we want to do. And we're making some really great strides on getting that done. That sounds wonderful. I was wondering as you were talking, and maybe you kind of hinted at it there, was what kind of messaging do you go into the communities with? It sounded you were talking a lot about economics and what else has been working for you in terms of having them adopt some of these more clean energy installations? Uh, So... I recently, well, over the past weekend, I was at a Southeast Environmental Justice convening that I helped organize with an environmental justice group, Harambe House, out of Savannah. And it brought together all of the Southeast EPA Region 4 states, except for Tennessee. We didn't have representation from Tennessee, but everyone else was there. And in talking to community, that's one thing that you have to do. You have to get in there in the, in the community and actually have these conversations with them. Yeah, get to build a relationship, um, right? And build the relationships and build the trust and build the understanding of what they actually need. Talk to them about their needs. One, talk to them about their assets. What are some of the great things that mm. the community already has in place? And then what are the needs that they have? The adoption with electric vehicles, some of the opposition to that has been what does, uh, and these are smart communities. They've been doing this environmental justice work for a long time. So their their concerns are, what does the waste of these batteries 
after they're they're done look like and is it going back into our community oh wow so yeah is, that's that's a so it's good thinking that's a that's good thinking that's why i said they're very smart about their communities they don't want to see more form done for the sake of innovation i see then second is you know yeah the cost because most people think that you have to go out and buy the Teslas in order mm. to have an EV. They don't know that there's cost-effective cars out there. Like they're not all super expensive. You've got yeah. your Leafs, you got your other, and, and you can buy them used at that. You can get a used EV. I know like here in Georgia for around $8,000. And then you don't have the same maintenance that problems that you would have on a traditional Yeah, $8,000 is good. Car. Yes, for a used car. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's the education piece around that, looking at the environmental effects. So utilizing a lot of the mapping tools that are out there. I know that there's the EJ screening tool that the EPA has. The DOE has a brand new environmental justice uh, mapping tool that they utilize, which for those listening, if you're interested in getting some applying for any of those Department of Energy grants that are coming down as part of the infrastructure, the IRA or the BIL, bipartisan infrastructure laws or the infrastructure bills or Justice 40, you have to, to in order to qualify for any of those, those dollars, you have to be within those communities that they have mapped out on okay. their site. Okay, so that's, that's just a little good to know. But showing communities, like, these are the things that play currently based upon these maps that plague your community. I bet carbon offsets really high on probably the majority of these because a lot of them, again, are red line communities next to highways, next to warehousings. Yep. You have big semi-trucks and things coming through. And so talking to them about, you know, they even have air quality monitors in most cities is looking even at air quality monitoring. So you take the, the numbers and the statistics and talk to them about those things and you put it into terms that people can understand. Here's what this could mean for health benefits. I see. Here's what it could mean for not only this, this could also be a solve for some transportation issues that typically plague these communities because they're either that last mile problem off of the public transit or they have too much public transit and not enough really infrastructure for roadways. And so talking to communities about what it is they feel like they need, give them the details about what's out there and letting them make the informed decision. Like we would like to see some electric vehicle transition yeah. in our community. Like, yeah, sounds like a good option. So that's, that's the formula. So it sounds like it, it's in person, it's face to face. It's not, Here's a video on TikTok. And yep. it seems like it's very specific to that community. I'm sure there's some general similarities between other communities, but you really have to know that community pretty well. And that probably takes some time, I'm imagining, right? Because you have to build that relationship and trust. And they, they want to trust you. You're not like <clears throat> paid and bought for by some big energy company. Absolutely. So... You know, environmental justice communities, and when we're talking about environmental justice, and I just had this conversation earlier, I think that the term is being more loosely used in industry to also combine low to moderate income, disadvantaged communities. You know, we throw these terms around and now it's EJ communities. I think that that's, but environmental justice is more so of a movement yeah, and less a community. I always that placed sense. it as a movement from from my perspective, but yes, but industry that hasn't necessarily they're co-opting um, it, think, or are they? Yeah, I think so. I think they're co-opting. They're putting it in with low to moderate income as well as disadvantaged communities. So that's no. kind of like the EJ word has taken place of disadvantaged, which really it should be environmental. As Dr. Mildred McLean would say, who's one of our great pioneers in the mother of environmental justice movement, she would say environmental injustice communities because they haven't oh, seen yeah. justice. Yet. That's right. Yeah, they haven't seen justice yet. So if you're looking at environmental injustice communities, 
some of them may be disadvantaged, but some of them may not be disadvantaged. Some of them more than likely are low to moderate income, but we don't put them all in these buckets like they're not all of the same thing. Environmental justice is really a movement and is a movement about climate, about sustainability, about community health, mm. uh, about uh, community economic viability. And it's like, what has created these issues? What's created energy burden? What's created the creation of, of climate change that disproportionately impacts these communities? Yeah. So it's more, again, it's more about a movement than it is about a singular community and what this community actually is. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to, no, to, I, to note that. I'm all, I agree with you on that. And, and one thing that you mentioned earlier on when you were at these energy conferences, predominantly male and white, that was my experience too. I am male and white, however, but I would go to, or not even go to conferences, but read books on climate or sustainability. And of course I was very inspired and, and that's what got me into doing what I'm doing today. And it took a little while, but I looked at it one day and I'm like, all of these books are written by white male authors. And I'm wondering where are the other perspectives? And so my question for you really is, I, I came to the realization probably too, not too late, but late later in the game that you really can't like the idea of climate action, environmental justice, it's, it's married to all these other topics, DEI included. And I'm, I'm wondering, are you, I know you agree with this, but are you finding more people are awakening to that or, or, or not? I would say some people are awakening to that. I know when I go and speak on this issue, I talk about, you know, the fact because, you know, three years ago, it was all about energy efficiency, mm -hmm. energy efficiency, energy efficiency, energy efficiency. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, okay, well, we can't talk about energy efficiency without talking about climate change. We can't talk about climate change without talking about environmental justice. We can't talk about environmental justice without talking about systemic racism. Mm. Are you ready to go there? <laughs> I just want to put insulation in my attic. Nope. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, like we have to talk about all of that. I mean, because people are wanting to understand like utility companies is, is specifically try to understand how can we, how, how come we cannot get minority or low to moderate income or disadvantaged communities, all of those terms to buy into these, in, these uh, energy efficient programs. Why are we missing the mark on these energy efficient programs? Uh -huh. It's because they're dealing with climate change yeah. and because they're dealing with environmental justice issues which is all a cause of systemic racism and the systemic problems from redlining and other things. And so if you're talking to, or you can talk to a person about switching out light bulbs and changing their, their, uh, their spouts on, their, on their, their sinks for water efficiency or in their showers. Oh, yeah. If the person is thinking about, do I pay, is, is energy burdened, which... That's a word that they're that they're not familiar with, yes. right? All they know is they can't pay their electric bill because they have this doctor bill or med they have to go pay X amount of dollars for medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's still no matter if they boost up their air because their house isn't sealed properly properly, that they're still hot in their home. Their home is still mm -hmm. hot. So, <laughs> you know, you you've got to meet people you know, exactly where they are and, and be yeah. able to explain and understand, like, I'm not thinking about changing light bulbs as an energy efficiency measure or thinking about that program mm -hmm. uh, when I'm energy burdened. And when we, back in the day, when my grandma used to tell me, you know, to close that door, I was letting her air out. Or right. and, I got that um, too from my dad. <laughs> yes, yes. Or when we would, they would have the wind, all the windows up in the house and have air and have fans in the window because they couldn't cut the air on. We were energy, they were energy burdened. 
Yeah. But, you know, as you think about as a culture for people of color, we're some of the most sustainable people out there. We've been growing crops in this U.S. for over 400 years. Huh? You know, we've been growing our own food. We've been recycling things and, and utilizing everything. And we've been saving energy in our homes. But the name of it, you know, people tend to think that these communities aren't thinking about sustainability when there's when these communities have been probably some of the most sustainable communities yeah. and sustainable people out there. But they're also, because of conditions of systemic racism, you know, it's caused other issues to where it's hard to it's hard to catch up. It's just yeah. hard to catch up. There's no equity there. It's not equal. It's not an equal playing field to where they're starting from. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does because it's like they keep on falling further behind if they try to make that step forward, right? Because they're already coming from from behind, right? Either economically, and then let a climate disaster happen where we've oh, got flooding. Yeah. I understand now, like in many of the southeast states, where you know communities are low lying and flooding. Who got put in those low lying communities? Why were why are they designated as that? Because probably from some redlining because yeah. it was undesirable property that, you know, <laughs> and so it, it is all connected. Yeah. Every single bit of it is connected. And you talked a little bit about, you know, the books that you've read and things like that have been published by white men and communities, environmental justice communities are, are at, really at a point where they're like, the systems that are currently out there are very extractive and they're sure. like, they're coming into our communities. They're doing this research. They're inviting us to these focus groups. They're getting all this information <laughs> from us, but they're not putting anything back into the community right. that addresses our, our issues. And so it's that restorative justice model that we want to see happen for environmental justice community. When I'm talking about research and design and people are like, will you help us with research and design for connecting with these communities? I'm like, what's the restorative part? It should be restorative research and design because as we're going to be getting dollars for all this research on these communities, shouldn't we be giving it back to them so they can solve some of the issues that they have? Oh yeah. That's or are we just extracting from them? We'll be back after this message to learn more about restorative design and how to best co-create with the community. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation? And how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. We're back with Pamela Fan. So restorative, can you define that in the uh, environmental justice movement? What, what would be restorative design research? Restorative, honestly, restorative design research is this, if you involve community in your research search efforts, for instance, we know that there's a lot of federal dollars that are becoming available. Which Most is good. Of those that, yeah, which is good, which is great. Most of those federal dollars are going to require that that organizations work with community-based organizations to get this work done. So just about every grant that I've seen out there requires like th usually three partnerships. So it's saying that you have to connect with a partnership in that community mm -hmm. to get this work done. Some, sometimes you have to connect with the school or university 
or minority serving institution or HBCU to get this work done. And those are the ones that typically are doing a lot of the research, come in, do the research lens, as well as some utility implementers or utilities themselves, because they want information like how, and the thing is, the information that they want is not bad information. They want to know how to best support these communities. And the way to do that is to go to the community and find out how can we best support you? What programs could work for you? What type of workforce development should we be looking at for your community? But while you're extracting this information, also find out, you know, as you know that you're going to get a certain amount of dollars for this project, how are you pouring that back into the community? So that's the restorative part. Are you actually developing a workforce development plan and pulling that together to go back to the community and say, now that we've done this research, we have X amount of dollars that we're going to provide for workforce training. Or now that we've done this research, we know as the utility that we can work with maybe the water company to go in and help clean your water systems. So it's that restorative part. We'll give you the information. You can extract it from us, but give us something back yeah. and put it in writing. So then that way we know right. for it, sure. It, it's legal. <laughs> yeah, put it in writing so we know you. for sure that you're going to come back and do that. But that's what it is. And so as I'm working, and I will tell you, I'm currently working with a couple of organizations on RFPs to do research with, because I work closely with communities. So of course, they're like, can you assist us with this? And I'm happy to do it because we need to do the work. Yeah. But it's also about how are we pouring back into that community? What's the restorative part? So again, it's restorative research and design. I like that. Yeah. There is an example I heard on a podcast I was listening to recently, uh, Matter of Degrees. And they were talking about a U.S. Department of Agriculture grant in Southeast Alaska. So I think it's called SAS or Southeast Alaska Sustainable Strategy, in which it sounded a lot like what you just described there, but I think maybe even went further in that the grant was actually given to the community and the community collectively, not through some other person or whatever, they had to come together and say, this is how we want to use that, like $8 million or whatever it was to improve equity and environmental justice in our community. And this particular podcast was glowing about it because like, that's the way it should be done. And so that, that was inspiring. And so it seems like you're working that way too. And was this something that you got from Coca-Cola or is this something that you just continually built upon after leaving uh, that job in terms of knowing how to work so well with communities? Yeah, I think again, it's, it's I go back to purpose, um, which I didn't see it, you know, that all of the steps in my career mm-hmm. and all of the workings, because I worked it, I, you know, worked a lot in community while doing volunteerism while at Coca-Cola. I used to be what I would call a serial volunteer. So any community project, whether it be a planting beautification project or a feed the hungry project or, you know, whatever the project was, I was there. My son could attest to that because he grew up (laughs) going every Saturday with me to either a food bank or something. Oh, wow. So I think, and you know where my spirit of volunteerism came from, is the fact that when I was growing up in Oklahoma, in that small town of Owasso, when I was uh, in, it was in 1988, I was a junior in high school and my family's home was burned down by a white supremacist group. Oh my God. Again, that's a story for another day. But it's part of today too. Yes, yes. But the the first responders for us were the American Red Cross. I give, I donate blood. I'm a platelet donor. I'm donating I, tomorrow, in fact, tomorrow at 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah, see, I'm a special, like, uh, blood donor. And so I've worked a lot with the American Red Cross, and I never made all of the connections from, one, the diversity aspect, from, two, the volunteerism and, and connection with community. But again, as you can see throughout my career, they all showed up. All yeah, these things have. just showed up throughout the career. And so coming into energy and, think, and connecting the dots about 
what people need. Like really one, having that empathy and that understanding of community in the war in what they're fighting against. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. I've been there. So having that understanding of it, knowing the system part of it. So seeing it from the other side, because I'm working in the industry and seeing the system of how people aren't making the connection mm-hmm. and giving them the tools as a diversity professional to make the connection, to then go and help community and do better in working within community. And then as part of the climate work, even, you know, I think you and I have talked about it before. I support some girls in Africa because this is a yeah. global thing, right? Not just a problem this here a in the United States. great project you're doing there. Yeah. So I support girls and send them to school through My Eagles Foundation, which you can find at My Eagles Foundation US. And thinking through the climate issues that they face which yes, they can be detrimental for communities here too, for people that look like me, but for these young women who won culturally, and these are young Maasai women in Tanzania, who culturally would typically get kind of sold off, quote unquote, for cattle or goats when they're 10, 11 years old, because there's that not value, the value for them isn't around education. They're seen as property. You're sold for marriage. Is that what's that, going on? Yes, yes. Marrying them off. Oh. We're sold off for marriage. That's for still marriage. happening? It's still happening. It's still happening. It's, it's a cultural practice. And then if you think of with climate change, these young ladies and women from these villages have to walk so much further because their water sources are drying up or they have to work in fields a lot longer because they are the ones, they are the the ones who who do the agricultural work for their communities and build their homes and things like that. So they're out in temperatures that are like scorching. So they're God. they're having health and risk effects, effects, you know, at risk for bodily harm, traveling so far away from home just to fetch water. And so when you educate these girls, you're also supporting them through through, you know, the effects of climate change as well and, and, and mitigating them from those risks and letting them see that there's other options out there. So this work, again, this is purposeful work. Yeah. When you talked a little bit about, is it on purpose? So yeah, it is on purpose. It's my purpose that I'm doing this. So I find myself connecting all of these dots with this, with this work that I'm doing and how it's all come, come to, to be a part. And I'm, I'm really just happy and just blessed that the environmental justice community has taken me in and has entrusted me so much to help them figure out the system part of it because they want to be a part of this economic opportunity that's coming to the energy that they know little about. They want to be a part of that and they see it as a way to rebuild their communities. And so that's what I'm most passionate about doing is helping them connect those dots. Is there anything that offhand our listeners who are mainly designers could do to help support the, the efforts that Impact Energy and, and the other projects you're involved with? What, what can be done? Maybe just, is it donation or, or what, what can we do to be help supportive of this? So I would say for my Eagles Foundation, it's definitely donation because these girls are going to private school. We're in the process of trying to build a school as well and secure donations for that. So if your passion is around supporting girls in education, in particular girls who are really in need and so bright and just it's so great to see that they realize they have a future, that would be at my Eagles Foundation US. And with Impact Energy, if you're thinking through you know, how to work better within communities and how to build equity within your programs, contact someone like us. We are a minority-owned, certified minority-owned woman energy uh, services company. And we are uniquely designed to be able to go and work within these communities, not only through having the diversity experience, but having also the lived experience of of these communities, which really lends to um, 
getting that trust and building that trust. So we want to see these dollars. And the thing, like you mentioned earlier about the project in Alaska, a lot of the federal dollars are going directly to community-based organizations, and then they have to find the partnerships. But a lot of these community-based organizations don't know who they should partner with. Okay. So it's really time to start getting out there and making those connections for them now, making introductions to your organization or to your school. If you haven't worked in community before, start getting out there now and understanding, go to a community event, go to a neighborhood planning unit meeting and learn about what the community is dealing with and what are some of the issues. Go to a city council meeting and understand what's happening in your community so you can start making those connections now because chances are they're going to need you. Although the dollars will flow, a lot of them directly to the CBOs, what are they going to do with it when they get it? They've got to implement it. And who can help them best with that? The colleges and universities, the minority-based uh, or minority business enterprises like my own, we're the, we are the technical experts that can go in and help them with their issues. And yeah. so, yeah, I think that that really is, is like the best model. Like go and find out what these communities need. Immerse yourself in the community so they know who you are and where to find you when they do get these dollars or when it's time to apply for these funds. Because again, even though the funds go to them, they've still got to come with two or three partners too okay. to make sure that that funding works. So get to know your communities. Yeah. You're also involved with a pretty great, you're on an advisory board with, is it, is it Jedi? Is it, how do you? Yeah, so I'm a Jedi, I'm a Jedi advisor <laughs> with Department of Energy in InRail for their innovation prizes. And so they originally brought myself, and I think there were about six of us that either people from community or diversity experts that helped them with their first innovation prize. What they wanted to do was really change the landscape of who was applying for these awards and not continuously giving them to the same people over and over again and bring about some diverse folks who haven't typically received government funding before mm -hmm. to help them do some great work in their community. So they brought us on to help educate them around how they diversify their network. Again, we talked a little bit about that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Ensuring that the program itself was not exclusionary, meaning that it was so difficult for people to do it that they were excluding those organizations that one only had like two or three people already working for them. And then they've got to fill out this 40 page innovation grant. Do they have the capacity to do that? You know, so they handheld them through the whole process and they picked some wonderful, wonderful organizations. They had over 200 applicants, which they had never had before. And they were very diverse applicants. And so, yeah, they're doing a lot of great work. They, they brought me back to continue Congrats. to do some more work with their Collegiate Innovation Prizes. I know you're going to share the link with everyone. Yeah, I But yeah. there are several different programs in there that, that colleges and universities can be a part of and work within community and get some really great work done and some really nice grants. Yeah, as a lot of my listeners are working as design educators in a college and university. And I'm on the website right now from the Department of, of Energy, or is it energy.gov that you sent me? And there's a lot of really good opportunities here for students interested in, in similar work that you do with internships, fellowships, and competitions. Can you talk to us more about actually those internships and fellowships and the competitions? Yeah, so I don't know a whole lot about the internships and partnerships, although I do know some people who have been fellows. I remember, I, I personally know one of the first African-American fellows that they brought on to work in their group. He's now actually a full-time person there. Hey, it worked but out. we had a lot of this. Yeah, and so we had a lot of discussions. It was about four, almost probably almost five years ago when we were introduced when he started doing this work and I was helping him think through some of the equity pieces of, of his work and also helping because she was the only one of him at that time 
in the organization, the only person that looked like him, mm-hmm. helping him navigate the challenges of being the only one that's still trying to lead the way for yeah, others. And now there's so many others. Yeah, now there's mm-hmm. so many others. That's so good. I've met a couple of the fellows. It's a great program. They look for, they tend to look for minority people in particular to do their fellowships. Their internships are great opportunities if you are, especially right now with the teams that they have at DOE, I've never seen it this diverse. Nobody ever has. <laughs> Since they brought on a person, uh, Shalonda Baker, to lead the equity work within DOE, they have really had a great focus of making sure the department and the group of people doing this work reflect the communities that they serve. And we are talking about nationalities across the board. They have a really, really great representation there, which makes you really proud to see. But with that, you know, they're always looking for great people. So I think if equity is your is your jam, if that's something that you mm-hmm. believe in, especially in this climate and energy work, I, you know, implore you to go in there and take a look at the jobs. There are a lot of jobs out there now with the Department of Energy as well. Because great. what it means is that, If you get people in a position that they are, you know, they already come with a sense of of diversity and diversity dexterity and they know and they are engaged with diverse people and diverse thoughts and we have them in these positions, that's going to make for better programmatic work that's going to come out of these offices in the long run, not for the short term, but for the long term. Yeah, it reminds me of there was a guest I had on last season named Brooke Havlick, and and she was talking about this idea of two truths. Where yeah, it's it's bad. There's some bad climate stuff going on, but there's also some a lot of good stuff happening. And and hearing the stuff that you're telling me right now just kind of reinforces that that yeah, there's there's hope here, and we can do this. There absolutely is. There's so much going on in this space. I thank God for diversity initiatives. I'm happy that many utilities have a diverse spend requirement, whether that be through their their yeah. prime contractors. That's great. Yeah, through their subcontract. Not all of them now. Not all of them have it, but many have like a 40% diverse spend requirement, which means they have to engage minority-owned businesses in this space. So you know, I'm happy to see to see all of the equity work that's being done. What makes me most excited is that I I can actually see a vision for communities to become whole, not only to benefit from the dollars that will flow into their communities to do the upgrades on homes, streets, infrastructure, get some of the technologies, community solar projects, EV charging station, possibly even wind, who knows, for rural communities to to see those things come into their community and create economic impact. Like this is the first time that there is a directive from the United States government to ensure that that happens. And so I'm really excited (laughs) that those opportunities are there, but I'm also nervous yeah, because we know that we have a short window in which these dollars uh, are out there. Because you know, as the changes happen with administrations, we can't guarantee that well, this administration will still be there, right? Got to make sure something positive is is still happening. Got to make sure something <laughs> positive continues yes. from this. So all of these fundings and and funding and dollars and partnerships that are being created, the people who want to see change like us. We've got to keep it going. We've got to keep keep talking about it. We've got to keep the connections together and we have to keep it going so it can be a permanent, sustainable thing. Yeah, totally agreed. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like just, just from, just from the idea of trying to do things better environmentally is, is one hardship. And then you realize to continue to do that, you have to join all these other fights because it's all connected. Yep. It's a holistic approach. Uh, I've told people many times before that we have to take this as a holistic, uh, we have to take a holistic approach to fixing 
the systemic problems because they not did they did not these systemic problems did not just get there from utility no in no. energy department no I started with you know it came got there from real estate mm-hmm. you know we know that healthcare has a stake in this because if we get homes to be you know weatherized properly and sealed up and energy efficient homes and people are able to pay a lower cost on their electric electric bill, then they can put money towards other things. And they won't necessarily be spending as much money going to the doctor for asthmatic Correct. or COPD. Yeah. It's all connected, um, right? It's just... Yes, COPD issues. So you, I mean, it's all connected. So they didn't get the, this problem did not happen by itself. But that's when I go back to say it's a systemic problem. There are number of roots, and it's all rooted. It's all rooted in racism. It's rooted in racism, and out of that, all of these other things have happening. So it's not one industry's problem to worry about. It's not just the climate industry. Everybody's, everybody's. It's everybody's problem. Mm-hmm. And in order to make these these communities whole, we do have to take a holistic approach and into interactifying them. I agree. <laughs> I just wish more people could can see that. That's that's a challenge. That is the challenge. Yeah. Well, if those of us that see it, then we're the ones that are work on it, yeah. right? And hopefully, yeah, I mean, we'll just we have to go along with we us. Have to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sad to say we're almost out of time, and I got one more question for you, and sure. I'm going to have you put on my Oracle shoes and turn into a design educator for a minute. And the question is, is what would you do if you were asked to teach a design class? What project would you assign? How would you structure the class? Whatever. It can be as long or as short as you want it to be. I would, I would actually base equity in the full design of the course looking at it from an equitable lens. So thinking of the makeup of the students who take this course, I'd want to know what their lived experiences are, how it would relate to this course, how could they utilize this in real world examples and case studies, building equity into it. I'd build equity into everything. I don't think that we do that enough. And I think that that's the lens that I want all the students and everyone who whether they're students, younger students, or lifelong students like myself, I would want us to put an equity lens to all of that work yeah. that we're doing and figure out how to how to solve if we can solve the problems for the most at-risk people in this world. Just think about that. Yeah. If we can solve the problems for the most at-risk people. Don't you think that that then solves all those other layers in between and higher up? So if we put an equity lens on all of that and think about designing and solving problems for the most at-risk people, that's what I would do. Wow. I love it. Thank you for that. And it's been a wonderful conversation today, Pamela, and really inspired by your story and wanting to continue my own work in this world of climate justice, just like you. So let's stick together and <laughs> keep in touch on this because absolutely, we need a community, right? Yes. And you have one, you know, we, we've, we've got, there's a community of us out here trying to yeah. do good things and, and do good work. And so but for the first time ever in history, we've got some financial models that might be able to really help us do that. So yeah. yeah, let's all let's all get together and think through how we can. Yeah, how I mean, sometimes work. I feel so alone. I don't know if you feel alone in it, but it's good to hear that. I guess I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can it can be lonely, especially doing diversity work and doing environmental justice work. It can, but there's a community out there, and I'm telling you, it's so beautiful to see when these communities come together and really want to focus on 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 seeing that change in their community and knowing that there's a real opportunity right now to do it. Yeah, there is. And that's is. the thing. I would just implore everybody listening to this. There's a real opportunity to make some change right now. And if we can all pull together our resources and 
and thinking caps and work together, oh, we can do some amazing work for communities. Maybe we won't hit every community, but we can get a lot done. Mm, Yeah. Well, where can we find you online so we can help connect and support you? Absolutely. So again, we're at w.impactenergy.energy is our website. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn under Pamela Fan, and that's F as in Frank, A-N-N. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn through, and Twitter. So we're on Twitter as well under Impact Energy, or, and you can follow us there. But yeah, happy to reach out. Reach out if you have any questions, any thoughts. Happy to respond back again and create this larger community of resources so we can begin to really start seeing, you know, we can be the change that we want to see. We really can. And so let's all put those efforts together to do that. Agreed. Well, it's nice to have you on the show and thank you for taking about an hour of your time to be with me. Oh, it's no problem. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Climify is produced, edited, and engineered by me. A huge special thanks this season to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding. Batul Rashid and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help. Bianca Sandico as our new podcast manager. And Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on helping to improve the offerings of this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers.